Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. There's a recruitment theme to today's show. I've been to see Alan Redmond, head of global football for Rock Nation, Jay-Z's sports and entertainment agency. It was a timely conversation since Premier League clubs have already spent more than £1.5 billion, a record, in this window. Everyone is predicting a frantic final week. So, Johnny, who's got the greatest need to strengthen? Yeah, I mean, it's been a fascinating window with lots of twists and turns, but I still think Manchester United would would be the answer for the the team that's got the most work to do, despite the boost of beating Liverpool. I don't think that includes the kind of strange transfer summer that they've they've had. And actually, when you think about it, the, the, the biggest issue to come from that game was how much better a team they were, a much more Eric Ten Hag team without Cristiano Ronaldo. But of course, that also tells us that they need, if they're not going to have Ronaldo, they need a number nine. And I think that's their most, and their most pressing need for a couple of years, actually, have been a proper midfielder, and they may have one in Casemiro, although I still think they might need something else in there, but that's a step. But the number nine has been a big problem for a long time. And if you think that they've they've had years of trying older players, you know, Cavani, even Igalo on loan, they've tried to convert Rashford. Anthony Martial is this kind of elusive, kind of will-o'-the-wisp talent that even six years later still looks on occasions like he might be the answer but then disappears again and I don't I think they'd be foolish to bet on him so I think we, I think United in this last week of the window have got a chance to start or, or further that move away from Ronaldo and to really make that statement by getting a proper number nine I think without that they're still a very patchy team and they will run into to problems and the other thing I'd say is that I'm a big believer, when I look at transfer business, I'm a big believer in looking at the, the, the players that a club's able to ship out and not just the, the players that a club gets in because I think having a thin, sort of lean squad is so important and United have still got a lot of work to do 
in trying to slim down that squad and get it into that that kind of tight group of players that someone like Ten Hag's going to want to work with. So I think United still where the, the, the focus lies from my point of view. Mm. Is this market, Dom, being set by weakness as much as strength? You know, I'm thinking of the, let's call it the Manchester United premium. You know, Casemiro, well, 60 million up front. Some talk of a, the whole package costing about 160 million. Anthony, 80 million, really. Barcelona, you've got their desperation to sell off surplus players, basically, so that they can register others. So, in general, I know there's a lot and a lot of money sloshing around, but there's not a lot of professional expertise, is it? I think desperation always comes into it at this at this stage, and it's just, it just switches from club to club as to which which team is most desperate to do it. And, and we're in a in a situation where the, we've got a few very very high profile Premier League teams at the moment who desperately need reinforcements Manchester United with Johnny's detail but you could argue the same for Chelsea their policy this summer is born of desperation because you know, they need to revamp that squad it's they lost centre halves over the summer they you know they, they need to need to add at least one more to their roster before the the deadline closes um, they need to rejuvenate their midfield and they need to replace Romelu Lukaku and that's all born of desperation that their moves in the market I mean, you could even argue that you know, even even after the, the the wave of optimism that that swept Nottingham Forest into the Premier League, that their 16-man splurge of, of players in the in the top flight is born of desperation because they didn't have a squad otherwise. So, I mean, they've the money that they've spent's arguably warped the market for for a lot of teams outside that elite bracket of five six clubs right at the top of the division. So. It's always desperation, and it can look haphazard. It can look scattergun, definitely, as and it, and it will do even more over this last week, I imagine, as as panic sets in and 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 teams, as Johnny says, desperately try to shed the deadwood, which is really difficult to do. I and mean, there are some players at Chelsea that have been trying to shift for about four years, and they're still on the books. Baba, Baba Raman is yeah. Baba Rahman is still a Chelsea player. <laughs> Um, it's amazing how his name always crops up, but but it's it, that is the way it is, and you know the, the the better run clubs will probably be the quieter clubs, but they're only better run because you know the, the sort of development of their squads and the age maybe of, of of their squads means and the depth means that they don't really need to to make too many tweaks over what remains of the window. Yeah, I suppose we are deep in in saga territory at the moment, aren't we? We've got if you take Chelsea as you know, as Don alluded to there, Fafana, I think we're up to seventy now. I'm beginning to lose count. De Jong, well, you know that's a waiting for Godot transfer, isn't it? Aubameyang, well, you know there are obvious issues with him. Anthony Gordon, sixty million, even you know fancifully linked with Raphael Leal from AC Milan. If you look at Chelsea, Johnny, do you see any discernible strategy? They do seem to be going for some younger players. Yeah, I mean, it's a twin strategy, isn't it, Mike? It's a really interesting point because, on, well, on the one hand, they're going for, you know, your, your, your Carney, Chukwemekas, and, and I guess if they get Anthony Gordon, that's a, that's another sort of player for the future. And both both English qual, you know, qualified players as well, which is really important, I think. But then on the other hand, you've got you know Koulibaly and, and Sterling, who are more mature players. So I think that, I think there's a, I think there's a twin strategy there, and I do see yes a pattern because what I like about the business is they're clearly buying to Thomas Tuchel's 
orders in terms of, of how he likes to set his team up and, and, and play and, and you know they're still buying for having a three centre back system for example I think Cucurella is actually despite the price is a, is a smart signing because he's very much in the Chelsea mode of, of sort of wide defender wing back come full back sort of player what surprises me about them I guess is the identities of, of, of some of them and, and, and actually it's the Anthony Gordon one that blows my mind I have to be honest it's not to get at the player but I think we can get overloaded by stats and output a little bit and sometimes not look at the individual. But it seems to me that that's a signing that's purely looking at the individual and not at the output. Anthony Gordon looks apart. You know, he looks young and keen and yeah, like he's affecting games. But I'm not sure if he really does affect games, not to £60 million worth anyway you know at the, at this moment in time so i don't know it, it that, that that one's that one's a really curious one i'd be i'd be really interested to know what tuchel's seen to me you know anthony gordon's not even not even close to the england squad yet and there's players in that england squad that you, you probably wouldn't buy if you're chelsea so that's the odd one and it's odd to try and do that one while they're still trying to buy fafana because leicester are so they drive such a hard bargain on price Leicester sitting there thinking we've got eighty million for Harry Maguire, and now you're paying sixty million for Anthony Gordon. Fafana's value is just going up and up. Those are the benchmarks they'll be looking at. Chelsea, yeah, it's, I think we've said it. It's just the most fascinating one to see where it's going to go for so many reasons: new owner and big money, and the gelling with a, a manager who's kind of wanting to change things anyway. Yeah, because when you talk about dead wood. You know, this is probably unfair, but you know, Callum Hudson Odoi, Dom, looks like he's going on loan to, to Germany. If you're Conor Gallagher, do you go back to the Coliseum and Crystal Palace? The doors of said Coliseum would definitely be open for him. <laughs> but, you know, Conor Gallagher has got two years of Premier League football under his belt. Last season was outstanding for a large portion of that season playing in a role that really suited him which isn't incidentally the role that he's playing at Chelsea at the moment which I think is actually that's where the, the problem lies and where his frustration may lie but if if, if Nottingham Forest are spending up to a, a deal that could amount to 40 odd million pounds for a player that has half that much experience at the top flight isn't a full international then what's Conor Gallagher worth and how in heaven's name would Crystal Palace ever be able to afford him as a permanent signing we'd, we'd have to say that he's suddenly been elevated to a hundred million pound player I mean it's just nonsense and and Anthony Gordon comes into that as well this market is it's insane for certain talents Conor Gallagher needs to play games Conor Gallagher wants to go to the World Cup with England Conor Gallagher would probably stand a better chance of going to the World Cup with England if he was on loan at Crystal Palace at the moment uh, Anthony Gordon has apparently said that he he would like to go to Chelsea to further his World Cup prospects. Anthony Gordon's World Cup prospects will nosedive if he joins <laughs> Chelsea because he'll become a squad player overnight as opposed to a player that starts every week, albeit not necessarily in the position that he wants to play at the moment. At Everton, actually, while we're at it, going back to who needs to do the most business, well, Everton Everton to find a centre-forward, my word, they don't they need one so badly? And that's I, I appreciate that Dominic Calvert-Lewin will be back in contention soon but I think last season probably showed that his 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 body is fallible and he's vulnerable so they need to I mean presumably that's what's driving their 
their willing willingness to sort of almost countenance losing Anthony Gordon if they can go in and 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 sign a a number nine to to lead their line. Leicester is a club you know well, obviously, Johnny. They've got Chelsea and Manchester United in their next two games. Are they in danger of becoming an object lesson in how things can fragment really quickly? No real sign or no appreciable sign of new signings. And essentially, they're being picked off financially. They are. I mean, this has been... This is actually. I think it's not been quickly, Mike. I think it's been a stagnation, maybe more than a fragmentation, and something that's that's happened over time. There's been a flatlining of, of performance, I guess, at, at Leicester, and it's there's a feel to it. We've seen it before with with other clubs where they do well to a certain level, maybe actually well up to that ceiling level that they're capable of, and then where do you go? And there's that feeling around the fan base. There seems to be that feeling around the coaching staff. I have to say, I've not, I've seldom seen Brendan Rodgers quite so kind of flat, really. And clubs are taking advantage of that because all of this breeds a feeling among the squad. I think that that, that where are we going? You know, one of Leicester's selling points to get the likes of Fofana and Tielemans is come to us, be part of something young, vibrant, developing. Come on a journey. You know. Prove yourself, show your career, we're going places. Once that narrative starts to fall down, then they're left thinking, well, okay, I've done the, the joining the journey part, now it's time to do the advancement part. And it's no coincidence that the, I think the players that want out now and that are being targeted are those clever signings of two years ago that they managed to pick up who were actually capable all along of playing at the top level the big six clubs, if you want to call it that. But Leicester were able to get them by offering that something that is different. Well, now they've done their two years and they want to move on. And I think what's really... Leicester have always lost players. You know, they lost Kante and Mahrez from the title-winning team, but recruited brilliantly to replace them. That's the biggest concern for me with Leicester. It's not the fact that they may, in the next week, lose Tielemans and Fofana. It's the... I don't see the signs of that brilliant recruitment anymore and I don't have the confidence that they've got those players lined up to replace them that's the biggest concern and then the Brendan and the coaching staff need a new challenge you know that are they ready to go again this, this is something that will affect lots of clubs in time I mean I'm, I can see Crystal Palace for example who's his recruitment in the last two summers has been absolutely outstanding but but all those players have come in really thinking that in a couple of years time they could move on to a Champions League club or you know, a, a, a play at a, a higher level, so that they will hit the same wall effectively at some stage, and it, and and it then becomes a case of how have you evolved in the meantime? How have you have you brought in another wave of players that's going to replace the wave that are going to leave at huge prices, etc.? I was just going to ask Johnny because you mentioned in the in the original answer on Fafana that, that Leicester will will be confident that, that, that seeing that this price going up and up and up, but is there not a case that Leicester desperately now need recruits and actually the only way of paying for those recruits is probably by selling for Fana. Well it is Dom and that, maybe that goes back to what I said about the recruitment policy which is in the past they'd have had that recruit already in the door Yeah, that's what's changed, they've now left themselves exposed as you say that they they can't you know, Fafana goes, they can't hobble on with Johnny Evans the only kind of like really serious defender in there, the rest of them Soyunku was brilliant a couple of years ago. Brendan doesn't seem to rate him anymore. He's trying to sell Vestergaard. Mm. 
and Amarty's always just been a converted fullback. So in the past, Leicester would have had another player in there. Now they're in a, a bit of a tight spot. But I think overriding all of that is that, that it's a club that, that, that would rather almost cut its nose off despite its face when it comes to valuations. If you don't meet their valuation, you know, maintaining that is the most important thing. And, and they, they, they'd probably rather not sell than be seen to lose someone on the cheap. And that strategy is what's got them £80 million for Harry Maguire after all. If you think about Riyad Mahrez and Maguire actually, both signings that it took the buying club a full year to execute because they went in one window, didn't pay the price wanted and then had to come back. So I think that will remain the view from the top. But I think I think Fafana has to go because he doesn't he doesn't look like he wants he's going to play ball if he stays and I think they have to get someone in. It's a tight schedule now, as you say, Don. Well, we're told he didn't turn up for training. He's now with the under twenty threes, which is you know in the bomb squad. Other strategies employed by other clubs, Dom. Quite interested to see how Southampton pans out. They're at home to Manchester United in the BT Sport game on Saturday lunchtime. When you look at their strategy, Lavia, 18 years old, Bazunu, 20, paid significant sums for them from Manchester City, Mara, 19, off the back of the Livramento signing last year. Is that a sustainable policy, do you think, for a club like Southampton? Or I noticed that most of those deals have got buyback clauses as well. So the big club's going to win in the end, whatever happens. Yeah, they will, but it's about... It's about how much Southampton get out of those players in the in the interim. I mean, Tino Livramento has a has a buyback option on 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 that for Chelsea. But you know the way he was going before he was cruelly injured. You'd imagine that Southampton would have got two years of superb performances and easily mid table football out of him before losing him at what would still be a profit in in the market. Okay, they wouldn't he wouldn't be commanding the eighty million pound fee that they they might have got if he was theirs potentially um, I'm, I'm big leap I know but you know that that's the type of ball ballpark figure but it makes sense I think it makes sense as a policy and and given the number of young players that have been hoarded by by big clubs or indeed developed by big clubs whether they've been they've come all the way through their youth system or been picked up while still young and joined the youth systems but that is really the only way that middle of the road middle ta- mid table premier league sides can operate when, when they're trying to bring in these young talents to give them game time to blood them and then you know if they can get as i say two years two three years out of them then absolutely fantastic it's the same with same with palace really palace picked up michael elise for 7 million pounds from reading why has Michael Elise gone to Crystal Palace? Well, he, he's gone there to play in the Premier League for a few seasons in the hope that he goes on to something bigger and better. Um, and, you know, if, if at the moment he's on course to, to doing just that. Um, and, it, you know, you could probably make the same argument for, I don't know, Eberich Eze, who's been illuminating the, the Premier League to date this season. The, the, the fees that these guys are, will command, though, will... will Keep the keep it all going. It will allow Crystal Palace to go back into the market to bring in more younger players. And I quite admire Southampton's policy. It, it does need a blend. It needs a blend of experienced players with these youthful talents within the first team to ensure that you don't get dragged into relegation trouble. And I think there's a propensity for that to happen at Southampton still. I mean, it was such a miserable end to last season. And I know they've had two wins this week, one in the Premier League and one in the League Cup, which has sort of bolstered things. But they are still a club that I, I look at and think, well, they're a bit on the edge. They could go on either way at the moment 
but I don't see any other way for them to, for clubs like that to operate. That 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 is how they should operate, and it's a way for them to thrive in the Premier League to their level whilst playing within their means, basically. Mm. What about Arsenal, Johnny? You know, there's that some talk about Pedro Neto as the as the last fifty million pound piece of the, the jigsaw. I'm more interested in William Saliba, to be honest. Now he's thriving after two seasons in Nice and Marseille. Have Arsenal hit on something here that they, they they're almost using League One as a nursery for their emerging players? I think they've got lucky, to be honest, with Saliba and and. Maybe in maybe in hindsight they'll look at it and think that that really worked well that, that two years out in Ligue 1 to to let him build his career what a brilliant strategy that was and they might retrofit it but I think sometimes in football fortune comes into it and Saliba's almost excelling at Arsenal despite the club not because of the club's strategy and and it's one of the reasons I'm so happy watching him and admire him so much what a player he is and and the way he's taking his chance but that guy's had to wait and didn't have the confidence of Arteta and the club. Whatever he says, you know, he didn't rush to take him back last season. He had a brilliant first season on loan in France. In fact, he was brilliant when he when he arrived. He came with such a great reputation. He was ahead of Fofana, actually, in terms of reputation. Didn't want him initially. Didn't want him after the first summer. Came back this this year, and they were still looking at centre-backs. They, looked, they tried to get Lissandro Martinez after all. Manchester United gazumped them for him. So... Saliba had to wait and come back and then prove himself in, in pre-season training and then finally the light bulb goes on in Arteta's brain. Wait a minute, this is a serious footballer. But I don't, you know, I'm not being harsh on Arteta because that happens to lots of managers and he's had the good sense to recognise it belatedly. I think he is like, he's a cliched, it's like having a new signing. It is as if they've been given an £80 million pound Defender and what 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 a player! But like Arsenal's Arsenal activity is one of the most interesting things in this whole summer, because that's a team that's really gambling now to try and take that next step, spending big money, doing the things that we we say that the the American venture capitalists don't do. Well, the Cronkies are doing it, even flirting with FFP. They're really having a go, and I guess what fascinates me is like what's the reasoning there? What's the what's the equation here? Is this all about we have to get in the Champions League? Is this about we think we're capable of a title tilt with this team? We think is this Spurs are, are coming hard, so we've got to go hard. I'd, I'd, I'd love to really probe Josh Cronky's brain and understand why, but, but I love it. I think it's great. I think it's what the fans deserve and what the club's needed for a long time, a proper, a proper go. And so far, so good. It looks like they've, they've been recruiting brilliantly. And with Saliba added into that and not Martinez they've got a chance just briefly on Saliba I was lucky enough to be in France over the weekend and they obviously broadcast Arsenal's win at Bournemouth uh, live over there and there was a, a a lengthy sort of panel show in the evening uh, looking back at all the games in England that day but um, particularly Saliba's performance for Arsenal at Bournemouth and the, the general sense around the table was that an am- amazement that we were so surprised at how good he was because he's, he's he has been outstanding in 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 french football domestic football for the last few years and you know he's finally getting his chance and you know this is a player that has, that 
that was capped by by the world champions whilst on loan from Arsenal while Arsenal were struggling without any centre halves of any note. So it's 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 great to see that him, him doing well, and yeah, he looks a real powerhouse of a defender with a big future. Well, with his expertise in identifying, guiding, and developing young players, Alan Redmond is one of the most quietly influential agents out there. His views on the transfer market and the potential of a global talent base are intriguing. Welcome, Alan, first of all. We're reaching the climax of yet another transfer window. The market exposes a whole multitude of sins, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's always fascinating. I mean, as any football fan, in the run-up to the transfer window, you've got one eye on what your own club, the club you support, what they're going to do, what you hope they're going to do. And then obviously the market itself, the wider market, it's like a soap opera that runs the course over the summer that we're all addicted to. I think, you know, we had a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, where Fulham spent an incredible amount of money and the fans are very optimistic and then they got relegated. So the window itself is fascinating, but then you have the proof of the pudding and the eating thereafter. So I think, you know, to give an example, I think most people, I don't know if I'd include you in this maybe, but I think everyone I know feels that Tottenham have had a good window and that they're really going to be a force to be reckoned with this season. And I'm already fascinated to see how Tottenham do as the season goes on, because I think with that manager plus the manpower they brought in, they're going to be hard to beat. Because when you look at it, uh, you look around the Premier League, different strategies, sometimes not even any apparent strategy. Uh, (laughs) Is the market changing and is recruitment now more important than ever? Yeah, yeah, I think think recruitment definitely, I mean, look, it's always been important, but I think there's there's a couple of situations. I think if you look outside of the Premier League for one moment, recruitment and getting it right is of critical importance because a smaller Premier League team will often win a transfer battle against a pretty significant team in another European league. So I think that if you're you're sporting director, like Alex Rosen at Hoffenheim, for example, very highly intelligent guy, very nice guy. He's... He knows the market, he studies the market. I'd consider him one of the most knowledgeable people I've met in football. And he gets it right more often than not. You'd trust him to. Now, if he was working at an equivalent club in England, he would probably live through a few mistakes that perhaps he wouldn't get away with where he is at the moment because there's that financial buffer that if if, if it doesn't work out, well, you know, there's always January and we can pick someone else up and and see how that goes. I think some Premier League clubs, they can take a punt on a player and and if it doesn't work, they can think, well, we'll get half our money back in the championship perhaps. But no, recruitment and and I guess what leads to recruitment really is the alignment at a club. The alignment between the scouting staff, the technical staff, if you like, and, and the coaching staff. Because your scouts can sign a fantastic player but if he's not in the coach's plan, then that's, uh, it, it's a moot point. So I think that that's, that's where clubs such as Liverpool have really got it right. Michael Edwards, I think, has done a fantastic job. Jurgen Klopp has done a fantastic job. And between them, that's 
multiplied the quality of their work? That quality of your work, we've always been accustomed to transfer activity as being, well, football in general actually, as being basically capitalism on steroids. <laughs> Is it still a Wild West type of exercise? Or as the sums have grown bigger and the stakes have got higher, has it become a bit more professional? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that in a weird way, one of the things that's led perhaps to less of a wild capitalist approach is the increase in the capitalist approach in the ownership. Because if you have a company to come in or an individual who comes in and buys a club, they've been successful in other businesses. Now, it doesn't always work out, but a lot of the modern ownership groups, they want to know where every penny's going. Certainly the well-run ones. Perhaps at some of those clubs, they may spend some money initially, but it's just to get the ship on the course they want. And thereafter, they'll probably pull back a little. So I think that, look, Chelsea's the obvious one to, in, in this transfer window. They've, they've spent a good bit of money. They're probably not done yet. But I think that, they, they, uh, yeah, as I said, they, they probably want to get the club pointing in the, in, the, in the direction that they want. And after that, they'd probably hope that they'd have to spend significantly less to keep it afloat at a high level. So there are huge elements to the Wild West. I think the agency side of things, there's always been an element to the Wild West. FIFA, as you and I have discussed several times in the past, FIFA deregulating the agency industry didn't help at all. And we're still living with the consequences of that. They're reintroducing an exam. I think it would have been reintroduced, but for COVID, I think it's probably going to come next year. That'll help, but then you're going to have you know, a few thousand, probably a couple of thousand in the UK agents who will be incapable of passing the exam and there'll be a little bit more chaos. They will still operate. They'll probably just go back to operating from the shadows and and pushing players to somebody else. So, yeah, it's, it's I guess it's a strange mix of super commerciality mixed with some shadowy goings on by certain parties, yeah. Is your business changing though was the, is the nature of the business changing you spoke about chelsea spurs they are making it seems to me strategic investments in some very promising young players yeah that's an area that you've specialized in in the past again as we've spoken in the past we've seen some absolute horror stories are we going to continue to see those and is exploitation almost an inherent risk when you're dealing with players at that age it's such a difficult one it, it really is a difficult one because, you know, I, you spend time with some of the clubs you mentioned and at the, the youth sectors of those clubs and they have such a level of care and love for the players by and large. I really, I really do believe that. It's just not possible for everyone to have a career. It's, in fact, it's not, sometimes it's not possible for anyone to have a career in a particular age category. I, I feel at times there should be a sign over every academy that says you're probably not going to be a football player and they see it every day on their way in. And it can inspire some, and it can, it can sort the wheat from the chaff maybe in some sense. But, you know, my, my I've got so many kids, Mike, sorry about this, my second youngest daughter, <laughs> um, she goes to drama every Saturday. Now, neither her nor I have any high expectation that she'll win an Oscar at any time. And I think that's the issue, is that perhaps you could say the academy system over-professionalizes the amateur side of the game, because it is, they don't get anything. The young amateur players until such time as they sign a professional contract, obviously. 
But I do think perhaps they wear the same shirt as the first team. They're often at the same facility as the first team. So they look at a first team player park in his car and they think like, I'm like him. They're not, they're miles away. They're at a boys club with a loose affiliation with a professional team. Realistically, they have virtually no chance of playing for the specific, if it's a Premier League academy, virtually no chance of playing for that specific academy. Hopefully they can have a career in football. But I think potentially everyone in football could, between us, and I'd include agents in that, could do more to perhaps prepare players for the eventuality that they may not have a career. Mm. The chosen few, to put it like that, are the contracts and the commercial opportunities for those young men and young women now after the Euros, yeah. are they more enticing? Are we, are we looking now at perhaps a new generation of multi-multi-millionaires being produced by football? On the commercial side, I still feel that it is the top 1% maybe. Because you have, you know, you pick a, a random championship team even one of the upper level championship teams, the ones with a chance of promotion. Reality is very few, if any of their players are of any commercial value. Might be a boot deal there for a few grand a year, but in terms of endorsing any product, they're dead to the market. There's no real desire for them to endorse anything. But I do think that one of the things you have, which you know, you've seen in American sports, I know you're a big aficionado of American sports, but you do have the top players are probably better positioned to, and, and you can punch me in the face for using this expression, <laughs> building their own brand, their own personal brand. And then I guess they can monetize that. And again, you know, it's sport. We all come into sport because, you know, into football specifically, because we love football. I don't really feel that even, you know, we have players who are of high commercial value, but football is what they live and breathe they may make additional money with commercial pursuits, but everything stops and starts with football. So yeah, I think the idea that perhaps the, Amer the thing that with Michael Jordan and, and um, Wayne Gretzky and people like that in US sports or US or Canadian sports, yeah. <laughs> where the, sometimes the brand of the player is almost bigger than the club and sometimes the player is of enormous commercial appeal to certain brands that perhaps the club may not be. Yeah, that's going to grow at the top end for sure, yeah. Well, that impact, you think, you, know, you, you, have a, you have a global role here at Rock Nation, which we'll get into, but that's the NBA model. Yeah. It's player-driven, celebrity-driven as well. Can you foresee a stage where perhaps the Premier League would do something similar, where you would have key individuals, as you said, almost becoming bigger than the game itself. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's interesting that if you look at the, the best players in the world at the moment, and obviously Messi is winding down, Ronaldo's winding down. Some would say he's wound down completely, but there <laughs> we are. <laughs> yeah, well, he's, let's see. I think that'll take a, a twist before the window closes, no doubt. But I think that if you look at, you've got maybe Vinicius Jr. He's got 10 years in front of him, if not more. In terms of the Premier League, the quality of the Premier League, every, most players in most European leagues want to get into the Premier League. They see it as being box office. It's not just the basic you know, level of the wages are often higher. But in terms of next superstar within the Premier League, it's difficult to see because 
at this moment in time because you have so many incredibly good players, but perhaps there isn't a, a Ronaldo or even a Beckham, for example, who, you know, the profile, the commercial profile was enormous. There may not be that player that just appeals to every man at this moment in time. You know, look, we, we do a lot for Kevin De Bruyne. And if you look at Kevin, Kevin's, I would file him in the same category as Lionel Messi. His defining asset as a player is that he's incredibly good at football. That's it. So a lot of brands want to uh, associate themselves with Kevin De Bruyne because he's such a high-level athlete, such a high-level football player. Whereas if you look at perhaps the Beckham situation several years ago or, or Ronaldo, I, I don't quite see another player in that mould in the Premier League at the moment where they're, they're as much fashion as they are sport. One of the defining characteristics of, of big athletes in North America is their ability or certainly their willingness to act as, as almost social commentators. Could you see something like that emerging here? You know, if you look at Liverpool, a club you know well, a club you worked with, you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold, Andy Robertson, they seem to do everything together, don't they? You know, there's, there is a charitable aspect and a very keen social conscience in their off-the-pitch activity. We've seen Marcus Rashford apply pressure the Lionesses now are, are applying pressure about school sport. Do you think sportsmen or sportswomen have now a much more visible and valid role as social commentators? I think they've got a responsibility. Once you, I think in any walk of life, if you earn, once you go over a certain amount, I think you have a responsibility as a human being to give back. And I think that one of the things that quite appealed to me about Rock Nation was They've got a 15-person philanthropy department in the, the New York office, but obviously all of our UK-based athletes can use it. But it's a great asset to have. So, for example, Chris Richards, who I represent, Chris was at Bayern Munich, signed for Crystal Palace about three weeks ago, but he's from Alabama. And where Chris is from gets badly hit by tornadoes. And Chris was, I was speaking to Chris about it, and he made the point that the tornado's gone. It's not on the weather reports anymore, but the damage is there for three years. So Chris wanted to see what he could do to help it. So we were able to connect him with our charity and philanthropy department. And he's putting together his own way of helping his community. I think it's something most players want to do anyway. You, you will have a certain amount of players who may just be all about their football and all about their money for them. But I think more and more people are, are realizing that, you know, it makes them feel good to do it in the end as well. So there's A, they should do it, and B, it actually gives them some sense of well-being. And, the other thing I think as well, sometimes with very wealthy athletes is there's certain things, they can buy what they want. And I think perhaps the feeling they get from helping others is something that they can't buy. When you look at football in general, let's have a global perspective on that because that is your role now, isn't it? You're yeah. you know, head of global football. Inevitably, you've got a very, very broad perspective. You're working in Brazil. Why Brazil? Is there something symbolic about it? What can you do there? Yeah, so I came to Rock Nation a little under two years ago, September 2020. And obviously we were very restricted in when we could travel or where we could travel at that point and, you know, even within the UK. But part of the plan when I came to Rock Nation was to expand. Um, and I mean, the. Uh, the phrase that was going around in my head all the time was intelligent expansion. Didn't want to expand for the sake of it. 
had no real interest in going into an already saturated market. And we will expand into other territories. But Brazil has always been fascinating for me because I guess the first World Cup I remember is the 1982 World Cup. I was just about to turn seven years old. And you remember certain things. I remember the colors of the Brazil shirt. I remember the colors of the Cameroon shirt in that World Cup. And then, you know, I'd heard from my dad about Pele. And then, you know, you start to discover that team and you have Socrates and Junior and you had just such, such incredible players, Zico. So, you know, there's always been a romance about Brazilian football for me and probably for you and for any real lover of football. But above and beyond that, my feeling with Brazil is that they've produced for 80 years in a row, <laughs> consistently produced the best players on earth, or at least some of the best players on earth. But it's... When you work in football, the more I've worked in football, I see it as a very transactional market. And I look at the service that our players get here. And then I look at the way a lot of transfers happen from Brazil into Europe. And it, it feels like high level trafficking at times to me. It's certainly an anarchic process, isn't it? It is, and, and there's a lot of people getting paid. It's questionable how many of them have contributed significantly. I'm always wondering how much money's escaped from the player. That's, you know, always really care a lot about the player because he's the one with the shortest career of any of us so needs to be protected and then once he arrives how he's preyed upon by who's on the ground here so i think that from my perspective i just thought well i know that brazil has done and is going to continue to produce incredible players europe is fantastic platform for them to go and play and and, and show their talent and then I think on top of that then, there was one other factor actually, which was very taken by when I started to research Brazil as, an, as a, a location for expansion. The domestic league in Brazil is notoriously hard to follow because it splits for the state championships at a certain point. And, and although we all love these Brazil players when they play for the national team, club football, I don't really know anyone who follows it that closely. But they're also playing about 80, 90 games a year, aren't they? They are. They are. Palmeiras last season, I think they played, I think it was... I went out there and I met with Abel Ferreira, the, the coach, and I think he said to me they played 81 games or 79 games or something last season, and they won Libertadores and how they did it with that number of games. But there is a restructure happening the season after next of the Brazilian league. I also thought that was timely. I thought we're going to go in there, we're going to do what we do in every territory, which is identify some of the best emerging talents and then a couple of current stars that little bit further down the road in their career. But just I thought, because it's such a large export market, we can do that. But I think we can probably do it with a little bit more love than it has been done in certain cases. I hate to even call it an export market because it sounds like the sides of beef instead of footballers. But it, the best players from Brazil do leave, so it's a descriptor. But also, they have to come to foreign cultures, different lands. You know, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen, examples of players brought over here and also in Europe and just basically being left. Yeah, yeah, you know, we I, years years ago before I was an agent and I got called to see if I could help a player out. He was an Argentine player, he was living in, a, in an apartment, he had a mattress on the floor, he had a, a smoke alarm with a battery, which we've all had at some point, that just kept going on and off. And, and when I spoke to him about it, he said to me that the alarm had been going off for the two weeks that he'd been there day and night. And now that's never going to happen, a player that we represent and, you know, a player we represent no matter where he goes or, you know, if it's a South American player coming into Europe. If you don't understand the correlation between the player's 
you know, his, I guess his personal well-being and his mental state being closely associated with his ability to perform at a high level, you're in the wrong business. In Brazil, I'm guessing, might be an educated guess, who knows, uh, that it is a very introspective world, which is essentially operating with half a dozen, let's say, really influential personalities. How do you go and win the trust of people like that? You know, you've told me previously that Neymar's dad gave you his helicopter for the day. That's got to be a surreal experience, isn't it? Yeah, that was surreal, all right, for sure. No, look, I think like I've spent, I've spent eight months researching it. I've gone down there. I think I've got a good read on the market. We will be using people, we will be using Brazilian people down there because I think it's a mistake to go in and say, you know, you've done it well for 80 years, we'll take it from here. So I think that we've got people we trust down there and we, we will, who've been doing good work down there and we'll continue to let them work mm. in the intelligent way they have been working. Is it a bit like India in cricket? They have a continual production line of cricketers by dint of having you know, X billion people. Is it similar with Brazil and football? You know that there's almost a never-ending conveyor belt of talent. I think so. I think so. Now, you've asked an Irishman a question about cricket, which is... <laughs> it's not my specialist subject, put it that way. But I, I, what I would say is that, yeah, the, the, I think from my limited knowledge of cricket, I think it is. I think it's, it's in the water. It's in the blood. And if you look at it at the moment, they've got... There's a young player at Palmeiras turned 16 a few weeks ago, and... and I saw him play when I was down there a few months back, and it's just a phenomenal player. What's his name? Endrick. There's a couple of kids at Santos. Yeah, it's just a, a cultural state that will never change. I mean, Brazil, football and culture, football is such an enormous part of culture, I guess is what I'm trying to say, that the country is so fixated on it. And there's so many kids playing it down there, and they've got such technically amazing examples to look up to that I, I just don't see a time where they won't have a supply line. And look, you go back to, might have been the 2006 World Cup or the 2002 World Cup where Dunga was the coach mm. and a lot of Brazilians were critical about, you know, oh, are we becoming like a, a mid-table German team? Are we playing practically, but where's the magic? But then, you know, a couple of years later, they've got magic coming through again. So, um, yeah, I think there's a, a lot more life left in that. Another part of your brief is looking after football operations in the United States, North America, with MLS. The perception of it over here as a league is not terribly flattering in many ways. It's a bit of a pension plan league, sort of place you go to invest the last couple of years and get as much as you can out of your previous reputation. As I say, that's the perception What's the reality? The reality is that the level is very good and the level is improving and the level of youth players they're producing is phenomenal. So I'd say, for example, from 2000 onwards, the 2000 born players, but if you look at the 02s, the 03s, there's some, some really fantastic players there. And look, my, my motivation for Rock Nation in the US was Michael Yormack, the president of Rock Nation, he was very determined that, you know, it's an American company and that it's great that we're having the success in Europe, but we should also be doing something in the US. And, uh, you know, it's a good point he made. And, and I think for us, it was, it was really threefold for me. Firstly, the producing fantastic players at the moment, very, very good young players. So if, I'm, if part of my role is trying to sign the best 
elite young players at the moment, I couldn't neglect it because they're really, you know, if you look at the FC Dallas's academy, for example, the talent coming through there is crazy. Inter Miami's academy, absolutely stuffed with fantastic players. So that was the first thing really, was to be signing the best players as they sprout, if you like. The second thing then for me was, I think as an American company, I wanted to have, I felt we should have a, a few players who just play in MLS, no pressure to export them. I think we should have a footprint in the US game. And I also think that if we were purely going into MLS to just jailbreak everybody out of there, we, we probably wouldn't last long. And then the, the third thing for me was a lot of our European players, they have um, a really strong desire to play in MLS at some point. Now, a lot of them won't get around to it because perhaps they wait too long because they, they want to stay in Europe and stay in Europe and stay in Europe and then the opportunity has gone. But I think a significant number of them will. So I just thought that if we had an operation in the US, we would be able to achieve all three of those. And in the US, one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to have somebody, I appointed a guy called Chris Wingert. And Chris Wingert was a little bit of an MLS lifer. He played 14 years in MLS. He retired a few years back. He went into the agency world. He did quite well in a, in a short period of time. But the thing I like with Chris is that he's been a player. If you look at the current coaches and sporting directors in MLS, three quarters of them he played with or against. So he can open every door in the league. He's a wonderful person. If he's spending time with young players, he's a great example for them. He's an educator and he's just got a real passion for the job, which is, you know, all of those things really are prerequisites. When you look at Brazil, you look at the United States, when are they going to play one another in a World Cup final? You see, my, my take on that is that, and I'm not just saying this because I work for a US company, but whatever they kind of focus time and resources on, they tend to do well. Now, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. I, I think US have, in recent history, performed quite well at World Cups. I mean, there's, they've had a couple of issues with having qualified, mm. but when they qualify, they tend to turn up. I can see a time where the US Winning it's tricky. It's a bit like winning the Champions League, isn't it? You could spend half a billion and get no, like knocked out in the last 16. I could certainly see a time where they're taken seriously enough to... They're on people's list of contenders. And part of it is down to the fact that they're producing great talent. And part of it for me is down to the professionalism, just that innate professionalism that they have. I've got to give them credit. That, that's probably more than the talent is what makes me think that they will not rest until they're close. But as a final question, are we entering the era of a global Super League? Yeah, I think as long as the English clubs hold firm, no. Because everybody wants what England has. And it's just a case of a couple of them almost got suckered into it. And it's just a case because there'll be another attempt. And it could be in a year, it could be in two years, but there'll be another attempt. And one of the things I saw recently was this might have been, it was someone from a significant European club, I actually don't remember which one, but it was something along the lines of, well, we may do a Super League that doesn't involve the English teams. And I think it's just bait because they know they can't do it without the English teams. It won't succeed, with, it won't succeed at the level they wanted to without the English teams. And it's bait for the English clubs to go, we don't want to be left out. So I think so long as the, the Premier League has, 
it has the best in, in a lot of areas. And in certainly if you look at what motivates a lot of the, the supremos at the top European clubs, it, it tends to be money and that's what they want. So when they talk about a Super League or they want competition or they want a, a f better fan experience, they want the money that exists in the Premier League. So as long as the Premier League owners, I'm sure all of them listen to this podcast, by the way, <laughs> they should. So long as they stand firm, I, I think the, hopefully everything will head in the right direction. Well, thanks, Alan. I have to admit, I wish I shared your faith about uh, certain owners in the Premier League, but we'll see. <laughs> thanks for your time. Thanks, Mike. I'm, I'm a couple of months younger than you, so, you know. <laughs>
this idea Alan I think was talking about how football's becoming ever more capitalist and disciplined along capitalist lines the conclusion of this article was that the French had failed to organise themselves into these big conglomerates the way that the British had, the Americans had the Portuguese and the Italians had and it was a it was a really interesting take on agency because usually you know I guess we're used to seeing big newspaper or magazine articles about agents in a sort of critical way you know the, the, the kind of abuses and so on but this was looking at it more from a almost like a it was like a business article saying you know what, what's been wrong in our capitalism that we haven't produced a super agency and it was saying that French agencies have to become more like the big conglomerates the Wassermans and you know, I guess the, the rock nations in terms of, of being serious sort of global companies that are, are, are in, in a disciplined way organising and looking for talent. And I do think that's a logical extension. And of course, that's what clubs are, are themselves starting to do. And I guess that point about how it's just going to become ever more run along the lines of, of disciplined capitalism, I, I think is, is, is entirely true. Yeah, I, I think I used the phrase in a conversation, capitalism on steroids. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, you know, I suppose, you know, naturally enough, that leads us into actually Alan's final answer about the potential of a Super League. You know, I think he was probably coming out with a consensus view when he said, well, you know, there'll be another attempt to impose a Super League on, on the world. His point, Dom, that if the English clubs don't play ball, it's not going to happen. Do you trust the English clubs or specific owners not to play ball? I'd like to think they were scorched by by their last attempt when a few of them did waver. A few of them were probably a bit more enthusiastic about it than they they let on publicly. I think the the, the reaction and from the public shocked a few. I hope I hope it did shock a few, quite frankly. Because I, I completely agree with Alan, because it doesn't work. It doesn't work without the English clubs. And that's not just an Englishman speaking up and being completely you know, biased on it all. It, the Premier League is is the draw. The Premier League is is the the clubs from the, at the top end of the Premier League are what people want to watch. I mean, I, again, going back to the weekend, there was more coverage on French pay TV of the Premier League than there was of Ligue 1. It says says it all. I mean, I know there are a lot of very very good French players in in the Premier League, but that that that's how it is. And it, it may be slightly different in in Germany and Spain, but the interest is still there. It, the interest is still there, and 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 it wouldn't carry the Super League would not carry the same kudos, same clout, without the involvement of the top level English clubs. Do you think? No, no, this is possibly unfair just to point them out, but I will anyway. Um, <laughs> Newcastle, would they, do you think, Johnny, be tempted to get involved with one of those sort of Super League breakaways, for want of a better phrase, as a bit of a shortcut? Or will they continue to do probably as they are at the moment, and that is build almost incrementally? I think Newcastle will ever more start to align themselves with whatever the big six in England are doing. That's that's the future for them. And, in fact, I know that the, the big six... Are seeing are viewing Newcastle as a potential ally. Maybe that's another vote we can get, another one round the table. I think that's the way we'll go. And it's it's a I agree with Alan in that Super League can't be dead because you, there's such a need for it for for Barcelona, for Real Madrid, for Juventus. And actually, there's there's a court case on at the moment, isn't there, with um, the Super League mm-hmm. clubs and and, and UEFA and the European Court of Justice, which may well 
end up in basically saying that the, 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 the judgment may well be that the Super League attempt wasn't illegal, therefore that another one can take place, but equally that UEFA sanctioning wasn't illegal either, so that UEFA would have the right to fight it. I think that we're now at a point where those clubs are so desperate that they will try it, whether they get the English clubs to go along with them or not. And I think we're at a point where the English clubs may not go with them because of the power of the Premier League. Also things like Liverpool putting supporters on their board and giving them veto over it. So it's becoming ever more politically difficult. But I think, we'll, I think we're going to see the, 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 the desire, the relentless desire for more money, for more power. That won't have gone away from Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, Man City. That hasn't gone away at all. I think it'll just be displaced into the Premier League. So if I was, my crystal ball would be we'll have a Super League attempt from the European clubs We'll have English clubs saying no, but then focusing on the Premier League and ever more trying to kick the other 14 around or the other 13 around if they can get Newcastle to join them to get more cash for themselves. So the breakaway might almost happen within within England, if that makes sense. But there's more battles. There's far, you know, this is not dead. The, the, the battle will be somewhere else if it's not Super League. Yeah. And if we're looking at new frontiers, and it's again an area that, that Alan is working in, the United States or, or specifically with MLS, at Leeds, Dom, Brendan Aronson you know, developed you know, within the American system, further development at, in uh, Salzburg at Red Bull. Do you think that's a precursor of the wider opportunities that American players are going to have over here? The better ones, yeah. I mean, he's obviously impressed... At Salzburg, I think probably. I mean, Jesse Marsh will have will have known about him, I guess, from from the states. But I think they have to. Uh, it's again, I'm I'm probably sounding incredibly biased here, and 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 and. But I think they have to prove themselves almost in the European League before they they come over here. I mean, even like Chris Richards has spent a, a season on loan at Hoffenheim, or eighteen months on loan at Hoffenheim, and done quite well there. And that's that's why he's suddenly come on Crystal Palace's radar and come into the Premier League. And, and and Aronson as well as he comes bolstered by you know forty six league games at, at at Rebel Salzburg. I don't think he would have been brought in and, and found himself straight in the in the Leeds first team if he comes straight over from Philadelphia Union. But that said, it doesn't surprise me at all that MLS clubs are developing young talent, are doing it in an incredibly professional way, and and attracting the interest of clubs on the continent over here who who recognize when a player is technically well trained and 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 ready to take that step up to a european league and and maybe in time as as elite academies in the states continue to develop and and continue to get better and better at what they're doing maybe there will be a time where where the you know premier league clubs go straight to them and 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 take them take them from source i mean that's maybe that'd be easier if, after Brexit, who knows? I mean, it might, it may be, maybe one way of doing it that, uh, that that the Premier League clubs can exploit. But it's no surprise at all that the level of professionalism is is right up there at MLS clubs. And and what Alan said there, you know, that that's that's that makes perfect sense because they they really know how to run sporting clubs, don't they? Let's be honest. Hmm. I noticed um, as a final point, Johnny, you know, your piece with Jesse Marsh, you know, talking about. You know, basically, the pieces on managers with university degrees, wasn't it? Do you think there's a subtle shift beginning? You know, uh, we had Graham Potter on the on the show last week. Again, someone with a a, a degree. 
Do you think we're, we've got this shift away from, I suppose, what you could call football lifers? I do, Mike. I think I think this has been, uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a shift over time, and the first wave were probably the. Well, actually, the first wave may have been the Fergies and the Vengers, who were, you know, ex-footballers. And footballers who had pretty good careers, actually, but not, you know, not superstar careers. And then management was there, where they fulfilled their, their, themselves. And then the Mourinho's, who again came from within football, within a sporting background, but were people who, Rafa Benitez was another, who gave up a playing career early to devote themselves to coaching. I think we're now almost in another wave, which are... People whose whose education is even is even broader than that, and even and and more outside of simply playing the game. Now, you know, Graham Potter, Thomas Tuchel, and and Jesse Marsh, who I mentioned in my my piece, those three is they've they've all got degrees from out, you know, not not just degrees in you know, physiotherapy or sports science, which a few of the managers have actually got, the likes of um, Klopp or or Guardiola or Conte, but actual just just you know arts degrees. Jesse Marsh is a history graduate from Princeton. You know, Thomas Tuchel's got a business degree from, from Stuttgart. Graham Potter's got a, a master's in emotional intelligence. So I think this, this, this wider education is ever more valuable for managers as the job of a manager becomes more complex. And one thread, I think, that, that binds certainly Potter and Marsh is emotional intelligence, empathy, um, those soft skills needed to relate to a complex, big squad of, of, of people running a, a large group of complicated, high-powered individuals. So those human skills that you need that I think are fostered in a higher education environment, in a, in a, in a, in a good university. I, th- I'm, I don't think it's going to be essential, but I can see where the value is for those managers. And a sort of final point, I suppose, would be, I mentioned in the piece that the, the LMA run all sorts of stuff now. They've, they've got a, an institute which, you know, does does various masterclasses on things. They, they, they've, they've run their own kind of diploma in management. And there's such demand now from members to get a broader education that they're looking at having a postgraduate award now where they can they can they can offer that to their members, and I spoke to Richard Bevan about this round about the time that Thomas Tuchel found himself as the spokesman on Ukraine, basically, and, and, and Abramovich for 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 Chelsea, and what an incredible job he did of of of, sort of navigating those issues. That you know the LMA are looking at ways to equip managers to understand geopolitics and understand employment law, and all those sorts of things that you wouldn't necessarily think are part of a you know 442 prepare your team for a game on a Saturday <laughs> but they are part of being a modern football manager mm. well football as we've discussed is an avaricious business yet wealth needn't be a curse it could be an opportunity that sport brat image imposed on previous generations of footballers is hopelessly outdated many are close to the communities that produce them and are unafraid to speak out on social and political issues that concern them, and of course, all of us. There's much to be cynical about in the modern game, but let's for once accentuate the positive where possible. In the meantime, thanks to Johnny, Dom, and of course, Alan for their insight. Thanks to you for all your feedback. Please tell us what we can improve, and the best way to do that 
is by popping us a review on Apple. I promise we'll be listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 